0: Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Afua Hush.
1: I'm Peter Frankopan.
0: And in our podcast Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history.
1: This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra.
0: An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries.
1: But her legacy is enduring. And so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today.
0: I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon.
2: To study a list of the betrothals of 16th and 17th century English kings is to study a list dominated by foreigners. Catherine of Aragon and Anne of Cleves were foreign-born queens of Henry VIII. Anne of Denmark married James I and VI. Henrietta Maria was the French-born queen of King Charles I, and the Portuguese Catherine of Braganza married Charles II. As queens and consuls, these women have become part of our national fabric. And yet, when the women arrived to be wed, they were very much foreigners. They traveled for months by sea in carriage to make land in their new home, not knowing a soul save those in their entourage. Their arrival in England must have caused feelings of sadness at leaving behind their homeland, as well as anticipation and anxiety about the new life that lay ahead. The sense of feeling like an alien and a stranger, to use the 16th century words for foreigners, was likely very strong indeed. And a strong sense of difference was felt amongst the people of England too. What would their new queen look like? How would she act? Would the marriage affect politics, religion, culture or society? One fascinating source for understanding people's perceptions of their foreign queens is The plays written and performed for a thriving theatre culture, plays exploring ideas about queenship and cultural mixing that proliferated from the late 1500s. To discuss the representation of early modern queens on the English stage, I'm very pleased to welcome Mira Asaf Kafrantaris, Assistant Professor of English at Butler University in Indianapolis. Mira specialises in early modern literature, and her work has appeared in the Cambridge edition of the works of Ben Jonson and the Palgrave Handbook of Shakespeare's Queens. She's currently writing Royal Marriage, Foreign Queens and Constructions of Race in the Early Modern Period, about which we will be talking today. Mira, it is a great pleasure to welcome you to Not Just the Tudors. I think this is such a fascinating topic that we're going to talk about today and it seems to me amazing that our eyes haven't been more closely focused on it for years but what I particularly like about your work is that you're using sources that other people aren't necessarily consulting for this purpose. I mean the plays of William Shakespeare of course, John Fletcher and all the rest of them have been around with us for hundreds of years and people have analysed and examined them in all sorts of ways What led you to think about these plays as a source for queenship and particularly foreign queenship?
3: This is a fabulous. It's a kind of a personal journey because I'm an immigrant. I moved across borders. I was very much aware of the movement of bodies and how borders are very much present, whether ideologically or physically. And I had to negotiate a lot this idea of citizenship, of who is incorporated into this ideal of citizen, who is a citizen who's not a vagrant, a migrant, somebody who is a threat to some ideal. So I've been grappling with this myself as I moved through two continents. And as an early modernist, I started thinking about the embodiment of the foreign queen Outside the framework of soft power as somebody who provides an heir or somebody who brings a large dowry or someone who performs the role of intercession as a patron, somebody who gives out gifts on New Year's Day, for example, because this work has been so helpful for me. To make queens visible, a lot of a depth of gratitude for the 40 plus years of scholarship that came before us. But I really started thinking about this movement that happens, which queen arrives into this ideal of history that is progressing towards hopefully, the kind of providential ideal that Shakespeare's plays have. Who is actually floating in space? Who is kind of an aberration and once I started thinking about this movement with objects and with other subjects and language and embodiment, it became very clear that there's a lot of racializing work happening when a foreign queen arrives and when a foreign queens perform the rituals of the state, a so baptism or coronation or a court mask.
2: And you draw on Shakespeare's plays, and we all know Shakespeare, but you also look at the work of people like John Fletcher, Philip Massinger. Can you introduce those two to us, just in case people don't know their work so well?
3: Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So I work on Henry the The play is currently actually playing at the Globe. And Fletcher was Shakespeare's apprentice, and he takes over as the king's men primary playwright when Shakespeare takes a bow. Fast forward to 2021, I read a play that takes place in the Portuguese-dominated space of the Malay Islands. And I read a kind of the sexual coercion, the capitulation of the native indigenous queen as a kind of power domination through imperial extraction and through the body of, again, and the consent that is taken away from the indigenous princess.
2: Okay, that's really interesting. And Philip Massener, who was he?
3: Philip Massinger was also a very prolific playwright. I worked briefly on his play, The Roman Tragedy. I was very much fascinated with the portrayal of the Empress, and I retired him for a little bit for now because I became so engrossed with the very kind of puff pieces of the wedding panegyrics that we read as these performances of the state and of abjection and patronage. But once I started looking at these panegyrics in both country of origin, like in the instance of Queen Henrietta Maria, who married Charles I in 1625. So these panegyrics in French are very much also doing a lot of race making in promoting the French queen as somebody who is able to control the environment, who bends the will of the ocean and her passage from Douvres to Calais becomes so easy because she has this power of reproduction, of wealth and beauty, this triangulation. What we read as these are moments of praise, when you start looking at them side by side, that actually a lot of racialization is taking place. So this is where my work is now concentrated in these panegyrics. And I do also the same kind of work in the panegyrics with Charles II's marriage to the Portuguese Catherine of Braganza. And in these panegyrics, the racialization is very much apparent. There's a very big threat that Catherine of Braganza is hybrid, is darkened because of the Black Luso-African descendants enmeshment in Portugal. So there's a lot of anxiety about her physiognomy, about her hair, about her uh, skin color that is olivaster. But the way that this match gets interpreted in the wedding panegyrics, it gets celebrated as another instance of Portuguese domination over its neighbor, Spain, and its other adversaries like the Dutch, but also as another example of Muslim excision. Like We were able to excise our Muslim minority. We are able to have this imperial project that is built on genocide and chattel slavery. And this is what's giving us supremacy in Europe. So this is how the match is being talked about in Portugal. When it comes to England, Charles II got restored after the interregnum of Oliver Cromwell. The royal coffers are completely impoverished. And the way that he articulates it to parliament kind of justifies this royal marriage is that through Portugal's imperial project, England is going to also gain to your political supremacy. And this is what happens,
2: sadly. So we have in this century, three foreign queens in succession with Anne of Denmark and Henrietta Maria of France, Catherine of Braganza. And you're suggesting, therefore, that there's a kind of anxiety about their foreignness. Is that right? Do the plays demonstrate both an an anxiety and a sense of potential wealth from their position as queen.
3: What a great question. For example, in Henry VIII, I read the three queens because the play ends with the baptism of Queen Elizabeth I. They are a very powerful and complex portrayal of queenship, of foreign queenship. And Boleyn is very much marked as foreign-born because she was raised in the French court. So there's this conversation about her French manners. And we know that manners are actually racializing terms. If we look at the work of Akimi, for example, in her really magisterial book, Shakespeare and the Cultivation of Difference, how conduct and manner become racializing language. So we have Anne Boleyn portrayed as French-born. We have Catherine of Aragon, who is fairy, who defends the commons. She stands up to Woolsey. She embraces Englishness. She wants to speak in English. She rejects Latin, and she remains faithful to the king up until her death. And then we have Queen Elizabeth I, who is going to create this lineage between the Tudors and the Stuarts. But my reading of this play is that because I read it alongside horticultural imagery of grafting. So around this time, the conversation around James I, because he was the Rex Pacificus, the king of peace, he wanted to marry his children to different nation states even if they were Catholic. One of the tracts that really fascinates me by Barnaby Barnes starts with, I am not worried, he says, that you are going to marry your children to different people from different stocks because the English stock can absorb the grafting. Englishness is powerful enough to neutralize all the markers of foreignness and incorporate the good bits because you are the good king. So there's this idea that the king has the charismatic center to use the anthropologist Clifford Geert's formulation. So it doesn't matter who the royal concert is. She can be Catholic. She can be non-white in this fantasy of white Englishness, of virtue, of domesticity that we see very much in circulation at this juncture. So my reading is, as long as there is a powerful king, then our English history is built on hybridity. We are the descendants of the Danes and it goes into all this genealogy. So the language of lineage is very much centered around the power and the charisma of the king. And it doesn't matter. Like all these conversations are not relevant.
2: Are you suggesting that then what is happening in the first decades of the 17th century, ideas about foreign queenship become an issue and therefore a feature of literature because there's a sense that kingship is not what it should be.
3: Yeah, the 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 short answer is yes. It's not only flattery toward the king. There is always the conversation about different power structures at court, and which ambassador has influence over the king. For example, I remember the Spanish ambassador Gondomar was on very good terms with James I, but that created a lot of tension at court, also with the king's favorites. So we have this kind of circulation of. Of influence that's happening at court. And I feel that these plays are harking, well, the play like Henry VIII, but also a play like Bon Dusser, also by Fletcher, around the same time, that says, in a way, let's focus on this geopolitical project that England can achieve, this kind of proto-imperialist might that we can achieve if we play this dynastic game properly if we have access to the settler colonial apparatus of Portugal or Spain or France. And this is what I feel needs to be very much foregrounded because we talk a lot about these royal alliances as these intra-European minutea of foreign policy. And I feel like we need to bring in the project of settler colonialism and extraction into this conversation because they are very much woven into to the warp and weft of the conversation surrounding dynastic marriages.
2: I suppose the other point to think about with regard to anxieties about the Queen's foreignness and, as you say, now increasingly in this century part of questions about colonialism, is also the backdrop around religion and the link between nationalism and religion. Is it fair to say that the plays are probing this relationship between nationalism and religion?
3: Yeah, completely. The work of Dennis Britton is so formative because Dennis Britton in his book, Becoming Christian, really gives us the language of religion as a racializing mechanism. So in his book, Dennis Britton's provocation is that with the advent of hot Protestantism, extreme, a fundamental Protestantism, what we call Calvinism or the idea of the elect. Only the elect people, the chosen people, are going to attain uh, salvation and are privy to amazing grace. However, this amazing grace, this idea of being saved, is Inherited. It's no longer a conversation about conversion and about converting a foreign queen to Protestantism. She is already diluting this idea of elect Englishness because no matter how much she proclaims fealty to the Anglican Church. She comes polluted. She comes as an infection. And this is why, in plays like Thomas of Woodstock, proto Protestant queens like Anne of Bohemia are, even though they did not secure the royal line, are very much elevated these exemplary women. Because even though she was German or from Bohemia or whatever she comes from, definitely non English, however, she is not a threat. To true Englishness, because there is this racializing factor of purity of religion, she is natural I suppose
2: people might find it interesting to think that you're using the words of race and racializing when talking about foreignness in this context, because of course, whilst if we look at Anne of Denmark or German Protestant queens, I guess like Anne of Cleves then we are talking about a kind of northern European heritage. We're talking about whiteness. And you could be arguing that talking about Portugal, which is, of course, Braganza, or the southern states, we're discussing here southern European racial identities. But how do you position it then when you think about someone like Henrietta Maria of France, who is Catholic and French, there isn't the elision between race and religion that I think you're implying.
3: This is a very great question. So Henrietta Maria gets racialized through her manners, her French dancing and her French acting, that how she is constructed in the wedding panegyrics. She is very much elevated as actually white. In the engravings, there are all these kind of symbologies of whiteness that allude, for example, to the idea of harmony. This is is a queen that's bringing harmony because we have this lineage of intermarriage between the English and the French. And whenever I'm thinking about foreign queens, I'm also thinking about how whiteness is getting constructed. Henrietta Maria, when she's in exile and the royalists in England are trying to restore her image in England, they publish The Queen's Closet, which Laura Knopper reads as this ideal of English domesticity, this idea of virtue virtue that can only be achieved through the mediation of the virtuous, chaste English woman who kind of reigns over the microcosm of the household. And for example, Penhurst, a country house poem by Ben Johnson, this ideal of the microcosm of the country house can only be achieved as one of plenty of hospitality through the mediation of Lady Sydney. There has to be this ideal. So yes, there is the racialization of the other happening, but also this idea of white, virtuous English womanhood is also getting constructed at the same time.
2: Now, do you think that the playwrights were seeking to provoke discussion of images and issues around foreign queenship? Or do you think that what they're writing reflected contemporary attitudes at the time?
3: I very much grappled very much with these questions. If you're going to St Paul on a Sunday and you're listening to a sermon, the sermon is, is talking about natural and unnatural women. This is very much part of the conversation. Who is a natural exemplary woman? Who is a bad woman? And around all these moments around the 11 to 1614 when before Henry the Prince of Wales died there was a lot of uh, conversation as well about the kind of queen consort who is going to be Henry's queen. And then after that, the idea of maybe a marriage with Savoy to kind of balance the Palatine marriage of Princess Elizabeth. That was very much a Protestant marriage. It was very much constructed as a natural. This is a natural marriage. And the kind of sermons, if we read the sermons around this period, they're very much telling James, wink, wink, this is the kind of marriage we want for childs. We do not want unnatural marriages because look at what happened to all these biblical kings like Ahab or King Solomon who got also their kind of their kingdom. The Commonwealth gets destroyed once a foreign queen infiltrates the realm, infects the realm physically, culturally, religiously, so on. So... Do you think that the plays are
2: operating to kind of help people think through their feelings and process their feelings about foreigners? Or are they actually kind of whipping up a xenophobic reaction against foreigners?
3: Playwrights are translating the conversation happening in the public sphere. And This is one of the many conversations. Who is considered noble? Who can acquire nobility? This is why, for example, plays like uh, Twelfth Night are so racialized. There's no conversation about somatic markers of difference. Means physiological, what we think of as race, which is the product of 19th century biological essentialism. If you look a certain way, you are on this peg in the hierarchy, for example. This is the kind of the product of essential biological uh, race-making that became prevalent. And we are living in that aftermath. But before that, differentiation and sorting was happening all the time. Because whenever there's power... And wherever there's difference, there is sorting. Who is included? Who is excluded? So, for example, in a play like Twelfth Night, Malvolio, who is a servant and aspires for nobility, he aspires to marry the lady of the manor, gets punished severely. The play is very violent in telling us that you cannot achieve this kind of other form of intermarriage that is achieved through rank, race as rank in this situation. My friend Carol Machia La Pearl talks about scent, how Caliban in The Tempest is racialized through the smell, the odor, this kind of the smell of difference. All these ideologies are ways that playwrights are telegraphing that we are in this moment of extreme melange happening in London. We have all these people coming from Europe. We have a lot of people from Africa who have been in Europe before the 16th century. And this is the work of MTS Habib that shows like kind of the presence of Africans in Europe, particularly in London. And we are also at a moment, we're aspiring for supremacy through the project of chattel slavery that's three decades down the line, for example. And Henry VIII, the play by Shakespeare, ends with Cranmer's prophecy that we're going to have new lands that are going to be named after you. These new lands are, of course, Virginia in the U.S. and Jamestown as well in the U.S. So we are very much talking about empire and about consent and about who has power over property, over land, over people. And this doesn't happen overnight. It's a subject of debate people are grappling with these ideas and of course it happened earlier in Ireland the idea of taming the Irish are very much racialized I think I went on a ramble but I do think to answer your question that they are very much this idea of racial mixing this idea of racial purity are very much on people's minds absolutely
0: Hi there, I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author, and I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex, scandal in society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages, to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hits. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yonaga.
2: But this is a capacious idea of race where it can even mean not marrying between different classes. This is race as any marker of difference.
3: Any marker of difference that is working in a very specific context to sort people, to signal that certain people can have power and maintain power and establish a lineage and other people cannot. The prince of Morocco and the merchant of Venice is punished, is mocked because he aspired for marriage to Portia. It's all language of these are possible or these are not possible. It's definitely on people's mind. But I also want to say that race making is not a kind of floating signifier like ethnicity. It has to be anchored in a very specific context where we can isolate how, for example, what a person is wearing can be constructed as a racial marker, the way that Greco-Roman past gets used to establish a lineage with this Greco-Roman antiquity and not with, for example, the medieval empires of Africa or the medieval empires of Asia. It's a direct kind of construction of a genealogy that people like Ian Smith, for example, have shown that again, what looks like a very naturalised or very unraised language, when we look at it through this kind of conscious picking and sorting, then this is race. Give me a few more examples of moments, you know, literally
2: scenes in the plays that give us an insight into these attitudes.
3: One of the examples that really stay with my students again and again is the construction of white futurity, and here I am using the language of Urvashi Chakravarti, whose book, Fictions of Consent, is really going to change the way that we think about the lineage between servitude and slavery. It's a really a brilliant provocation. So I start with, I put Sonnet 1 by William Shakespeare and Sonnet 130, also by William Shakespeare, next to each other. And in the first one, there is the construction of whiteness of you need to go as a fair young man. You need to procreate because you are being a threat to the race because you are not participating in establishing white futurity or ensuring white futurity. And then when you look at Sonnet 130, which is about the Dark Lady, and it's supposed to be like a tongue-in-cheek and people laugh about it, but in a way critiquing or praising the Dark Lady through the language of... Racism is nothing that Black women are going to be laughing about. It's one that compares her skin color to the natural skin color of an English rose, for example. Her dun breast, it's a very racialized language, supposed to be, in a tongue-in-cheek way, praising the woman because she is an aberration of the ideal of the blason, of the passive white woman who is aloof, the Petrarchan ideal. So despite this dark lady being antithetical to this ideal, he still loves her. He still desires her. And this kind of feeds through the very act one of Romeo and Juliet, where as soon as Romeo sees Juliet, the first thing he does is compare her to the Ethiop's ear and that her beautiful white skin is as pearly as the pearl that the Ethiop in one of these cameos that English aristocrats wear and still wear if you remember a few years ago when princess michael went to meet meghan markle wearing a cameo of a black person as a brooch these were signifiers of aristocratic wealth you have access to the wealth of exotic locales so she is on her white beauty can only be appreciated only through the material extraction, the objectification of a Black woman. Otherwise, we cannot think of Juliet's beauty without this direct contrast to materialized blackness and this is of course not my work this is the work of the magisterial kim hall who really gave us this vocabulary of race making in her book things of darkness and her big genealogy of work and my work is just engaging with that thinking race making would you like another example
2: yes please
3: I forgot. I lost my... You had
2: one that came to mind and has gone out, yes.
3: Oh, Cleopatra! Anthony and Cleopatra! It's a play that's very, very much invested in this idea of black queenship that is threatening this ideal of white virtue that Anthony embodies. And what fascinates me is that this Greco-Roman heritage, this idea of Cleopatra as a seductress, as a very lush, over-sexualized queen. If you look at the Arabic medieval text, there is no mention of her sexuality zero mention of sexuality. She is very much praised as a monarch who was a scholar, was a scientist, who dabbled in alchemy, dabbled in magic, was a very wise monarch. And there's no mention at all in this idea of a sexualized temptress who is immersed in the Nile, immersed in this idea of Egypt that kind of provokes Anthony to lose kind of his whiteness because of his With Cleopatra, it's very much works against the ideal of a Roman womanhood that is very much mirroring the ideal of white womanhood, because Anthony's Roman wife is very much this passive woman who is torn between her loyalty to her brother and loyalty to her husband. And this is one of the most idealised version of good queenship, is one whose loyalty is misplaced or so in conflict with the two men who are at the centre of whatever marriage is happening.
2: I know that Elizabeth I enjoyed performances of Love's Labour's Loss and The Merry Wives of Windsor. Do we know if... King James, King Charles, and perhaps more importantly, Anne of Denmark and Henrietta Maria of France saw any of these plays.
3: So Shakespeare's troupe got renamed as the King's Men. James I became the royal patron of Shakespeare's theater company. We know that many of the plays like The Tempest, Henry VIII, before they were performed in public theaters, were performed at court. And we have a lot of ambassador dispatches that say that we saw that play. For example, around Princess Elizabeth's 1613 marriage to the Elector Palatine, there's a lot of of correspondence that The Tempest was performed and Henry VIII was performed. Absolutely. Henry VIII, as well, in 1627, gets adapted and... In Act 2, the king's favorite, the Duke of Buckingham, stands up and he storms out because he wanted to, and this is the historian Peter Lake's argument, is that he wanted the audience to associate him with the Buckingham in Henry VIII, the play, who critiques Wolsey, Cardinal Wolsey, as a corrupt politician, and as a result, gets executed in act two. At Buckingham stages like this really very theatrical entrance so that it becomes really imprinted in the audience's mind that I am also this kind of noble favorite who got faulted by all these jealous and corrupt other favorites. There were also a lot of court masks. James I loved court masks and this was an occasion where the queen and her retinue would also participate in court masks. These were like highly stylized affairs. There's a lot of record of the kind of costumes that were worn. One of Queen Anne of Denmark's very famous mask is the Mask of Blackness where she performs in blackface and then she gets whitened after she gets the approval of the king. Uh, She sheds her blackness. Henrietta Maria brought the Ballet d'Entrée into her. The theater was very much a ritual of seeing and being seen and And also a place where this seeing is also an act of race-making. Because when you are seeing, either the, the person who's being observed... Or you are constructing your own presentation as, for example, the charismatic center, the king. So whenever there's a royal procession, for example, whenever there is a baptism, the conversation around how the queen or the king appeared, these are moments of race making because they are moving. And as they're moving, people are trying to slot them in places. And we see that a lot whenever a foreign queen would come. The procession is in itself becomes a theatrical as well, event.
2: Now, these plays are unlike the masks, public events, and they had to be approved by the master of the revels before they were performed. And obviously, something too overtly political would run the risk of censure. So, how did these plays? make it past the Master of Revels with all this content?
3: One of the most famous examples is, it was during the Essex affair, where there was a staging of Richard II and Queen Elizabeth I said, I am Richard I or Richard II. So that was like a very obvious situation of, an interruption. But my mentor, Richard Dutton, who wrote Mastering the Revels in several decades ago, I remember his provocation was the master of the revels was much more of a kind of a civil servant and admin bureaucratic work that meant to maintain the status quo. And it was not this kind of this idea of the censor as we think of it as. In our modern times, book burning, for example, or you cannot read that book or that book if you are. My only examples are from my context back in Lebanon. We grew up with lots of banned books. So there was not like this banning of a play, but there is definitely a back and forth because they're still themselves as related to the patron and they worked for the patron. And if the patron is the king, then They will try to accommodate. There's also the work of interpretation. So there's a lot of Shakespeare's plays are very much intentionally open-ended so that there is not one way of reading the play or one conclusion. And it was applicable in the Elizabethan period and it's applicable today. And if you are somebody whose ears are attuned to the plight of the working class, this is what you're going to notice. If you are somebody who is worried about all the foreigners in London taking our jobs, then this is what you're going to notice. So I think we cannot think of audience as a a homogenous whole, and the work of the interpretation is such a pleasurable and aesthetic way of giving closure to the text.
2: Yes, Shakespeare, surely too clever to have himself caught out on anything as obvious as one possible interpretation. I think... The other thing that you do that's so interesting is that you cross-reference the plays with huge amounts of other contemporary sources. Tell us about the other sources that you draw on and why you feel that the plays need kind of couching in these other materials.
3: It's the work of contextualizing the idea that these plays are not operating in a vacuum, but part of a larger conversation, whether in the pulpit, in the ends of court, in Oxford, in recipes that women exchange, the kind of the circulation of recipes. These ideas are moving and they're taking shape in very different venues and by different voices. And the more polyvocal or polysemitic the work of interpretation is, the more it is rewarding. I, for example, look at the New Year's Day uh, gift exchange that the Queen Consort, usually, it was an event that happens. I look at, for example, in the diaries, this is the latest thing I'm working on, is in the diaries that accompany Lord Sandenton, the person who brought Catherine of Braganza on the voyage from Portugal, he brings with him for his girls among the parrots and the novelty A Turk and a Negro boy. And they're not mentioned. It's just two words in the middle of a whole explanation about the royal procession and how she moved and how she disembarked. And there are like these two words and I'm fascinated. I want to hear their voices. Where did they come from? How is it that you bring them with the parrots and the novelties you bring with, like, this is human trafficking, and the archive is silent, but we have two words, and I am looking for them. I'm looking for them in artwork. I'm looking for them in Portuguese sources, just to get a sense of, where did they come from? And we don't know their names. They're just object of history. They're not subject within it. They're objects. They're brought along as a novelty. And we cannot tell the story of royal marriage, of Catherine of Braganza's marriage, without telling the story of these people who have no names, but came with... I wrestle with that. And these are the kind of the absences, the gaps that I'm hoping that my work, along with so many other of my colleagues are doing, is bringing these stories into these big narratives of English history of empire making and tell it from a different perspective.
2: Now, your work is very much on foreign queenship and it's on 400 year old literature. But given that I'm speaking to you in Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee Month, what do you think you can learn or we can learn from your work about queenship that resonates today?
3: Thank you for this wonderful question. And the conversation around Meghan Markle from the announcement of their engagement, whereas the announcement of Kate Middleton was in this very opulent, opulent space. Harry and Meghan's announcement was in a cottage and there were all these fantasies of domestic Englishness. It was a very pristine, quaint space. They said we were having a Sunday roast, very English, this idea of a Sunday roast. They were in their cottage, a very normal, easy affair. So there was this kind of communicating that she is not this black foreigner who is going to disrupt this fantasy of white Britishness, upper class white Britishness that Kate Middleton kind of brings with her as demure and procreative. The same conversation happens around her black motherhood. So I read, for example, Samuel Pepys' diary of Catherine of Braganza. She had a miscarriage and had a nervous breakdown, Catherine of Braganza, and they were in Bath Spa to take the waters. And she has a hallucination, Catherine of Braganza again. And she imagines that she already ha- she had a child. And she tells Charles, I really hope that the baby, this imaginary baby, does not inherit my looks, but inherit yours. Because if he inherits mine, he is going to be ugly. And this is in Samuel Peaks. And I read it alongside the conversation around Meghan Markle when the insidious picture of her coming out of the hospital with a chimpanzee that a BBC brought. tweeted The idea that also the conversation that when Archie first appeared, the first picture of his baptism, he was wearing a cap so that his coiled hair is hidden. That's an intentional erasure of his blackness. So all this is very much... But isn't that just that babies have to wear hats? (laughs) The conversation was the children of Kate did not wear hats, And this was an evidence that they are trying to hide.
2: And so interesting, isn't it? Because actually you could turn that conversation around the other way and say, actually the most caring thing to do for a small baby is to have them in a cap, compare and contrast approaches.
3: This idea of the royal progeny as if they inherit the looks of the mother are kind of an aberration that needs to be hidden. And the way that... Catherine of Braganza, even if it was a rumor, but Samuel Pepys, the most important or famous diarist, writes it down that I don't want the child to be ugly like me. So I see parallels. A day after the royal marriage, Meghan Markle wears a hosiery that is beige. And it was like very apparent that this is not one that is made for non white women. And she was wearing it. There was this kind of complete incorporation. This is like the incorporation. She is wearing the hosiery of whiteness. And she was walking around and it was very much from an outsider perspective. She came from Southern California where it's sunny and people don't wear hosiery. And the idea is that somebody handed her these and this is what you wear and you wear them. So this idea that you need to be absorbed in this fantasy is... It's happening. It's within reach. It's very sad. Once you start seeing the language of race-making and difference and exclusion, uh, okay, no wonder she left.
2: What a fascinating insight. Thank you so much for this approach to thinking about queenship in the early modern period that is a really different, I think, and is taking the work of the, you know lots of ideas from lots of people. You've been very good in crediting and acknowledging those, but then developing it with regard to thinking about these plays to give us a very interesting insight into the culture and thought of the time. So thank you so much.
3: I appreciate it very much. It's really an honor and a privilege to be a guest.
2: And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and Not Just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com.